Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. As we're going through this book of 1 Timothy, the letter that Paul wrote to his young protege, young pastor who he was mentoring and leading along. In chapter 3, he introduces, well, he begins to talk about leaders in the church and what their qualifications are. In so doing, he introduces some terms that are probably familiar with you, but maybe weren't sure what they are. Um, One of them is the word bishop. He's talking about the qualifications of bishops. And then he also refers to deacons. Now, there's another term that's related to these, and that's the term elder, and another term pastor. And these are the basic you know, offices within the church in terms of church structure and church leadership. Now, just to give you an encapsulated view of how, why there are so many different churches, a lot of it has to do with the understanding of how churches are to be structured. Now, the word bishop, episkopos in the Greek, means an overseer, somebody who's looking over. Um, and so there, we have an episcopal form of church government, and that's set up with bishops that kind of oversee multiple churches, and then each individual church is overseen by elders within that. And so that's one way to organize church, certainly, and and it's been a, a large way within, certainly in the Western and Eastern churches. The Catholic Church obviously has bishops. In fact, they have the Pope, who's the Bishop of Rome, and then they have bishops in other generalities and localities and everything, but it's this hierarchical structure, and they base it on the fact that the Bible refers to bishops. Um, There's also a Presbyterian form of government, and that comes from the Greek word for elder, presbyter, and a a Presbyterian form of government is more or less giving... giving, um, control to the elders at a local congregation. And so there would be a a multiplicity of elders within a church who would end up being the ultimate authority in terms of making decisions and things like that. There's a third form of church government that's prominent in, in the United States, and that's the congregational form of government, whereby um, basically everyone who joins the church has a vote and they vote on everything. Again, it's a distinctly American form of government because it's patterned sort of after the way our government is set up. There can still be boards, but ultimately the people decide everything and elect everything. And then there's another form of government that's become popular in church, and it's just a monarchy where one guy controls and owns everything. And those are all different ways of of setting up the structure of the church. Now, which one of those is biblical? Who knows? The Bible doesn't really say. It's interesting, and I I think each one of them has strengths and weaknesses. I like the accountability that exists in an Episcopal form of government, but I don't like the idea that some group somewhere else ends up determining what God wants to do in a particular church, because I think God wants to do different things through different people. 
I think a, a Presbyterian form of government can be really good, but often, again, you have a few people in the church who are making decisions for everyone, and so uh, that makes sense on a certain level, because certainly there are some people who are more into it than other people, but um, still there are issues that can come up with that sort of government. Congregational government is the one that you have the least uh, amount of biblical support for it, um, but as an American, I like the idea of everyone having a vote. Problem with congregational government is, um, biblically, you'll find that almost every time the majority is going to be wrong. And so, and and the other thing along with that is, if if a pastor is called to minister to a flock, and those people can vote him out if they don't like what he says. Um, it, it makes for mealy-mouthed pastors um, who just have to cater to their voters. Um, it turns a pastor into a politician or a hireling. And then having a pastor more or less in charge is, I think there's a lot of biblical support for that, but the problem with a pastor-led you know, church is that sometimes if he doesn't set up accountability or if his character goes south, it can be a problem. Uh, the good side of it is generally the pastor of the church is the one who's, who ought to be, have the greatest heart for the Lord and be most dedicated and experienced to make those decisions. And I've heard some people defend a uh, pastor-led church by saying, hey, if you're on an airplane and it loses an engine and they're going to have to make an emergency landing, when the pilot makes a decision, do you want the pilot and co-pilot to make the decision, or do you want to have all the passengers vote as to what we ought to do? <laughs> and uh, often that becomes the issue with congregational as opposed to pastoral leadership. However, I think it's really interesting that although churches have been formed and divided and people argue endlessly over what form church government should take, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't even say a word about it. It talks about bishops. It talks about elders. seems to be referring to the same people and the same with pastors. It talks about deacons, those who are to serve. Um, the word deacon means basically a servant. It comes from a root word of kicking up dust. And so the idea is like a, a waiter or someone, they would use that term for them, that they're just doing things that need to be done. Um, but the Bible talks about all of these offices, but it doesn't say who answers to who, how it's structured. See, that's a very human, fleshly way for us to look at things. Because we look at it and we go, we need to organize this. And we need a, a pure chain of command structure. Where's our pyramid? How does that go? And that tends to be the way we do it. But the problem is the church is an organism that's to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that he would build his church. And so the Lord wasn't concerned with who has what title or what they answer to or how it's really structured. God isn't that interested in that. What he's interested in is that his people would be people of God, that his leaders in particular would be those who are devoted to him, who are filled with the Spirit. And within any form of church government, if you have good people, you'll have good church. But if you have bad people in a good structure, 
that's going to be a problem because there are abuses in every form of church government, certainly. And really, our attention should be on what the Bible emphasizes, and that is don't even worry about what the job description of a bishop is. Here's the kind of person that they need to be. You can do the however you want to work out the jobs. That's not the issue. The issue is, will there be leaders in the church who are godly, who reflect the character traits of, of the Lord himself? And as a result, now when we look at these sections, I don't want you to just think, well, you know, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, so I don't need to do this. It's not, that's not what it's about at all. Really what Paul is doing here for Timothy is drawing the picture of a mature man of God or person of God. I think almost everything in here applies to women as well as men. Anyone who's in a position of leadership, but anyone who would aspire to be used by God. And, and that should really be all of us. He, he does say a, a, a bishop needs to be the husband of one wife, so that won't apply to some of you women, although in some states it could. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, he's talking about character. What kind of a person are you? And so I hope as we look through this real quickly this morning, you'll be able to hear from God if there are areas that he describes as leadership material. He describes them as maturity. And if it's an area that maybe you'd want to ask God to work in your life in that area, I think for any one of us, and if God had to use perfect people, um, none of us would would be qualified, but by his grace and because of his love, he wants to use us. And therefore, he wants us on the path of growth. He wants us to be moving in the direction of being qualified to represent him and to lead others. So when we look at this stuff, personalize it first and say, which of these traits might God want to do more in my life? And then secondly, this is a way that you can look and say, okay, what kind of people should I follow? Who should be influencing me? And it should be people who kind of measure up on, on these categories. So let's just dive right into it. Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So it's a good thing to want to to be involved leading others. There's something wrong if you have just absolutely no desire to be used by God in a, in a greater way. And so he says, first of all, a bishop then must be blameless. Now, it's kind of hard to throw that at you right away. Does anybody feel like you've been to blame sometimes? You know, of course we all do. The word there literally means not arrested. <laughs> it's like, okay, first of all, you shouldn't be a criminal. Um, but it's also, in a more general sense, the idea of when you go through these traits, um, you're going to see areas where you still need work. But there, it should not be that some of these traits just stand out in a glaring way that it's just obvious that people would, would laugh if you're suggesting that this describes you. And so the idea here is, yeah, it, when it comes to all of these traits, just... Make sure that you, you, don't, you aren't just so obviously to blame, that you are the epitome of just the opposite of, of what God wants in people that he wants to use. So just kind of a general category and, and uh, might eliminate people who 
have been arrested recently, but... (laughs) So the first thing he says is they need to be the husband of one wife. Now, whole books have been written on what this means. Some people will say, well, it means the husband of one wife, therefore that means you can't be a polygamist. But it's not a big problem nowadays, I don't think, and, and really wasn't a huge issue at the time that Paul wrote this to Timothy either. Um, so probably has more in mind than that, but that's one possibility. Certainly if someone's a polygamist, they probably shouldn't be a leader in the church. Um, there are other people who would say the husband of one wife means that you have to be married, so you can't be single. Problem with that is Paul was a bishop and, and Paul was single, so it's not telling you you have to be married. Then another position is that it just means one wife at a time. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that has, that has some merit, but... <laughs> You know, really, most of us who have one wife um, would say that that's sufficient. But, <laughs> and then there are other people who take a real hard-nosed thing on this, and they would say, if anyone's ever been divorced, they should never be a leader in the church if they've been married again. And I, I think that's just so contrary to what Scripture would teach. I can't buy that. There are people who would say that someone who was divorced even before they were a Christian or someone who was divorced because their spouse left them and divorced them, that, well, nope, you can't be. That's just so misunderstanding and misrepresenting God's grace that I could never, uh, I don't accept that myself. But if you want to have that view, you're entitled to it. I've only been married once, so easy for me to say. But really what this is, is it's one word that means a one-woman man. And it's talking about the character of your heart. There are a lot of people who might only have one wife, but they aren't a one-woman man. They, they are somebody who's constantly, their eyes are always wandering. Now, everyone's tempted, okay? But there are some people that's like their nature to just want something that they don't have, to always be, you know, flirting and going after others and being a real player. And even if they don't follow through on all of that, it indicates something within the heart that's just not right. In the same way, there are some women who aren't by nature finding their identity in one relationship, but they're kind of always sort of drifting and wandering. It's a real character trait when you decide that the person that God has given you is the only person you want to be with. And it also... Behind that is the implication that you care enough to nurture that relationship. And you know, maybe you failed in the past, but you're in a relationship now and you are wanting to devote your time and attention to it. I think some men, instead of being a one-woman man, they're a no-woman man. They're just into their, themselves and their old life and, and their wife doesn't have a significant place in their life. This is talking about someone who is in their character devoted that the person that they are with is the person they're going to spend their life with and that they make that clear and the way that they carry themselves sends that message to others as well. So uh, it's a character thing. This wasn't written to nitpick whether this person or that person can be 
um, a bishop. It's to let people know, okay, you want to be used by God? Make sure that you have the type of heart that's devoted to one person. It's not a place for, for sleaze buckets, in other words. <laughs> so he goes on and says, to be temperate. That word in one respect means not a drunk, but it's also used in general to talk about your temperament. It talks about a balanced personality. People who are mature in Christ ought to be not the type of people who are constantly knee-jerk reacting to everything, but there needs to be a calming influence that they bring to others. And may God help all of us to grow into this with, with our maturity as, as we grow in the Lord. And it's essential for, for leaders within a church to, to be able to not be temperamental, not be uh, those who are you know, high-maintenance kind of people. But it's just you have a nice, calming influence. And you know there are certain people in your life that have that trait. And it's such a blessing when there are people who you know, you can just count on them. They're going to be consistent. And so that's another thing that he puts in here. And then sober-minded, the word means to be um, thinking in a wise way. It's referring to someone who is careful about how they think, about the input that they get. They're thoughtful before they speak their opinions about things. And they really, they spend more time thinking and considering things than they just always do spouting off. And so somebody who has a mind that you respect, who really has reasons behind their opinion. They don't let other people just give them to them. And he says of good behavior. That word there literally means orderly. It means your life is together. It's not falling, it's not out of control. It's not just going in every direction at once. But, but maturity should cause us to be the type of people who we can make plans and we can carry through on them. We, we know, not that there isn't a flexibility of the spirit that's built in there because that wouldn't be good. But people you know, who are every week, they're off on a different tangent or they're looking into a different scam or they have another big idea. Um, mature people kind of settle into a groove. They settle into um, a plan and they do what it takes to fulfill that. They figure out what it is that God's calling them to do. They get the training that's necessary to do it, and they can build a life that's, that's coherent and that's, that's calm and mature. And so he says this is another characteristic that we look for in leaders. Um, they're also hospitable. Now, it's interesting to me that, you know, we talked about the husband of one wife. Whenever you hear about a pastor disqualifying himself or, oh, did you hear about another pastor fell? It's funny that we only use that in terms of if a pastor got caught having an affair and then we say, oh, he fell because now he's not the husband of one wife. Well, I'm all for that, but how come all these other qualifications no one questions. You know, if we're not hospitable or if somebody's going kind of 
getting weird or unbalanced or, you know, in prideful and things like this. I think that it's, it's really wrong in the church that we don't look at a man's total character before judging him rather than just say, well, if, you, if we're going to pick one area and that's the big one. All of these matter, and for each of us, we need to be asking God to work in our lives in each of these areas and not just picking and choosing because there are a lot of people who very arrogantly would say, oh, I would never fall. And yet, to even say something like that, you've already fallen into pride. And pride is something that will destroy you just as fast, if not faster, than, than to fall morally. But hospitable is one of those that we tend to not think about too much. But hosp- the word here for hospitable means, literally, it's a lover of foreigners, a lover of strangers. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were constantly alerted to the need that when someone is there from out of town, someone from another country comes in, that you're to welcome them and treat them like your own family. Because God says, because you ought to know what it was like being foreigners in a strange land back when you were in Egypt. And so you should be someone who welcomes others. Hospitality is that. It's It's the type of a, of a heart that says, I'm always glad to meet someone new. I'm always glad to reach out to someone who doesn't know. See, we can so selfishly focus on our own fellowship at the exclusion of others. And we have all of eternity to fellowship with each other. We'll all be hanging out together forever. But right now, the only thing we can do now that we won't be able to do then is reach out to others. And so it's so important for people who are in leadership to have a heart for for others, whether others in other parts of the world or others in new people that God might bring to our church or others in terms of people who are very different than you are, a different segment of society. There's a, in, in a godly heart, there's a, there's a fascination and an interest and a concern for people who are different. I think of Kay Smith when, you know, and Pastor Chuck tells the story, the hippies were, hippie movement was just starting, and Chuck, you know, just saw them as dirty, smelly hippies. But Kay was fascinated by these kids and always wanted to go down to the beach and just pray for these kids that she saw. And God began to work, and there was a real revival among that subculture as a result. Um, You know, in a church, I talked about this a couple Wednesday nights ago, but it's something the Lord's really laid on my heart lately. Um, A lot of times in a church, you can get so attached to people that even though you feel, well, in a lot of research, they've found that Almost every church, 95% of all churches, the people who go to the church regularly think the church is healthy. And so they go, yeah, we're a friendly church. We're a, they always name friendliness as one of the top traits of their church. But when you talk to people who come and visit, you get a very different impression in terms of how friendly is the church. 
And one reason why that is, is if you go to a church long enough, of course you're going to know some people. You will have done some things and been involved with people. And so after, you can't wait to go to church to see your friends and to talk to your friends. You can't wait sometimes for church to be over so you can talk to your friends or go out with your friends or whatever. But where does that leave the stranger, the foreigner, the one who comes for the first time or the second time? At first, they look at it and go, wow, what a bunch of friendly people. But then if someone isn't talking to them, they go, well, they love each other, but I don't think they care about me. No one's reaching out to me. Now, every person who comes through these doors, I believe God has some purpose that he wants to fulfill in their lives. And we don't know the baggage that they're bringing in. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know what their needs are. We, you know, they may be hurting for a various number amount of reasons. And, and maybe just someone coming up and saying hi to them, hey, I'm glad you're here today, is something that could make a huge difference. They'll take it as a word from the Lord. There are some churches that tell the people that for the 10 minutes after church, you're not allowed to talk to anyone you know. You only talk to people you don't know. Now, I'm not into regimentation, so I'm not suggesting that. But I do think it's a tragedy when we get to the point where all we do is hang out with the people we always hang out with at church and talk in the same little cliques that we always talk in. Because frankly... You know, the people who know you really well, they're tired of your stories. <laughs> and yeah, you know, they've been praying for you, but they've been hearing the same prayer requests, and it's getting kind of, you know, there might be somebody sitting across the aisle from you that would be fascinated by your stories. <laughs> and, and that's the way God has designed us. And so to understand that, ooh, to come to church going, God, I pray that this week I'll get to meet someone that I've never met before and that I can be an encouragement to them. What a difference that makes. And it has to start with those who are mature. It has, if, if you come to a church and, and all the leaders of the church are all talking to each other, you could wipe the whole leadership structure out with one hand grenade, then it's not, you know... What's that about? We should be spreading out. Those of us who have walked with the Lord for a while should be making sure that we're spreading ourselves out, that we have a heart for anyone new who comes along. Now, we have one of our pastors, Kenny Krikak, is the best example of this I've ever seen in my life. Ken loves to meet new people. And it's not a scam. He doesn't, he's not a part of a multi-level marketing thing or anything. He's just... <laughs> He really likes new people, and he's interested in their story, and he remembers. He's, it's just a, it's an amazing gift that God has given him, and we desperately need it within the church. But that's something for all of us. We have to ask for that heart. God, help me to care about people I don't know. Help me to care about people who are different than I am, and, and to be someone who deliberately reaches out, because somebody has done that for you, and it's important to do it for each other. And again, new people are going to be a lot more sympathetic to you than the people who already know you anyway. So again, somebody who's hospitable. Able to teach. Now, not everyone has the gift of teaching, but everyone who matures in Christ ought to be able to take what they're learning and pass it on to others, communicate it to others. 
whether men, women, young people. Maturity means the ability to ultimately you understand things so that you're able to articulate it to others. And this is something certainly that should come along with maturity, is the ability to, to hear from the Lord and, and to communicate that to someone else as well. It doesn't mean you have to be able to get into a pulpit. There are only some of us who have that um, curse. But um, <laughs> to just be able to communicate God, who he is, what he's done, what his word declares is a real blessing. And it's just a part of growing up. Not given to wine, verse 3. Whole books have been written on what this means. It, literally, it means not near wine. Now, you could either take it as being you shouldn't be anywhere near wine, or you could, ta- you should, could take it as, and probably the normal meaning of the word is, he's always the guy who's got a bottle with him, or if you're looking for him, check the bar, because that's where he probably is, always you know, hovering around it. Um, obviously, well, Paul talked about in Ephesians that being drunk with wine is something that's contrary to being filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm not somebody who says that what this means is no one should be a leader in the church if they have a glass of wine with their dinner or have a you know beer after work or have a keg on their birthday or whatever. I don't, you know, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, but you know, the whole idea is. Is that your identity? And for me, I don't know completely how to interpret this. So, you know, I want to be the most godly person I can be. And some of these areas are difficult for me. But if I don't drink at all, then I know I've got this one down. Okay, so um, unless this applies if you sometimes act drunk. But, um, (laughs) you know, the idea is somebody who's the Spirit of God is controlling your life not chemicals, not, not uh, you know, beverages. And so um, enough said there. You know, I don't judge anyone for, for drinking in moderation. Um, I don't do it. And the reason is because if it's at all connected with spiritual maturity, I, just, I don't need any extra help pulling me away from, from being a man of God. Not violent, godly leader, a bishop, a, a mature Christian, shouldn't be someone who's just always has this anger built up inside. They look like they're ready to go into a rage. They yell at people. They break things. It's, you know, and, and I know there are people who really struggle with this, um, but it's such an immature thing to do. You know, you start acting like a baby when you're an adult. That's just pathetic. So get over it. Learn to express yourself in other ways. Um, we don't need violence. Either violence in the way that we come across, violence in the looks on our faces, violence in the threats that we make. Grow up and just get over that. That's not a godly trait. And people don't want to follow someone who's, who's really violent. They might follow from a distance just to see what happens, but they're not really going to follow you. <laughs> Not greedy for money. Again, it's kind of funny. Nobody ever says a pastor should be disqualified because he's greedy for money. If they did that, I don't know how many pastors there would be left. But um, it's important that a pastor's motivation isn't financial, isn't trying to get more. I, 
you know, when I hear about pastors who are involved in these side businesses and investments and everything, I just think it's just confusing to people. You know, let's not go there. Let's make sure that, you know, what your job is, do your job, that's great. But don't be somebody who's always trying to get rich quick or trying to find, discover the next, the next scam. It's just not, that's not mature. It's immature. But gentle. Treating people carefully, being careful how you say things, being willing to back up and apologize and, and nurture a relationship that's been damaged. Just not being a blunderbuss, not being a blowhard, not being somebody who just you know, pounds over people and like, oh, whatever, you know, it's your problem. Um, not quarrelsome. People who are mature in Christ need to get past the point of having arguments all the time. I believe that arguments can be good in certain situations if they're handled properly. But from what I've seen in life, almost all the time we spend arguing with others is just wasted time. We aren't accomplishing anything. If you, at the end of your life, and, or your spouse is about to go be with the Lord, and if your eyes were open to how much time you had with them that could have been great quality time, and instead you spent it arguing, having a quarrel. You would just think, that's the worst stewardship of my whole life that we've spent years and years with these arguments. And there are some people who walk around with a chip on their shoulder just looking for someone to argue with them. Those aren't the kind of people who should be in leadership in the church. Those aren't the kind of people who are really have a godly maturity. We should understand. I, I tell people often in marriage counseling, I just say, you know what, next time you start, you have a disagreement and it starts to turn into a fight, stop it right then, flip a coin, whoever wins, wins. Because what we're fighting over almost never matters. You can do it either way, but we destroy each other with the way we try to carry it about because we want to be right. You know, some people are quarrelsome. Anything you suggest, they're against it. Anything that you think of, oh, nope, nope, you know. No, that's not what you need with people who are leading to be that way. You'll just spend all your time in fights. It's fun to watch, but it's a waste of a life. Also, not covetous, not wanting what others have. Um, Not being jealous of other people's ministries or of what's going on in their life. Not throwing somebody else in your spouse's face and going, well, he's that kind of a husband. How come you aren't? I wish you were more like him. I wish you were more like her. I see them and they just have this wonderful thing and you're just such a nag. And why? You know, as soon as you start looking at somebody else and comparing, you're already just going down a dead end street. The key to to spiritual maturity is a lot of it is just learning to be content with what you have and where you are. Quit being ambitious, quit striving to be somewhere else. If you're doing that, you're not in a position to be an example to others and to lead others. And so it certainly shouldn't be someone who's covetous and somebody who's jealous. He also says, one who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. doesn't mean kids have to be a Christian necessarily. It means that you, you lead your home in such a way that if people came there, they wouldn't be shocked that it's like 
So this is a Christian house? You're, you're an example to your children. You spend time with your kids. You set the best um, course for their life that you can. You give them all the opportunities that you can. There's no higher privilege than to be a parent. No higher privilege than that. And so understanding that that's a primary role. Your kids are still going to have to make their own decisions, and you can be a great parent, and your kid can wander off and, and leave Christ. Um, I've lived long enough to see a bunch of them come back, and I'm thankful for that, and I always believe and hope for that. Um, but ultimately, the idea here is too: don't get all consumed in ministry if your home's a mess. If you're not dealing with stuff at home, put your family ahead of what you're doing for other people because it's a complete shame if you're there serving God while your family is just going, hey, we could use a little attention. How about us? And so it's put those priorities in such a way. Now, I think that people can go extreme on this and their whole life is centered on their families and they never get involved serving God. The ideal thing is to get your family involved serving God and you do it together. That's the best by far. But anyway, he's saying you certainly need to take care of things at home before you get involved elsewhere. And then he's because if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And then he says, not a novice in the Greek, that's a neophyte, um, newly planted the idea is when somebody's a newer Christian, they shouldn't be immediately put into positions of leadership. It takes time. Now, that's a challenge to the older ones of us who have walked with the Lord for years. You're qualified. You've been through a lot. You've experienced a lot. And it's important for you to find ways to be involved because if you don't, you'll end up with people without experience having to be shot into those positions. And what happens, as he says here, is they can be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Pride will destroy anyone. There's no place for pride in spiritual maturity and in spiritual leadership in the church. And he says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Look at people and what the opinion of others who know them is, even non-Christian opinions are very telling sometimes. What do your neighbors think of you? What kind of a neighbor are you? What do the people that you work with think of you? What are their opinions? Sure, there are going to be obvious areas of conflict, but at least you shouldn't be conducting your life in such a way that they aren't drawn to you at all because you just seem like a complete kook to them Maybe you need to figure out why it is and how you can build bridges because building bridges is what we're here for. And so if non-Christians don't have a good impression of you, then you're never going to be able to help those non-Christians become Christians. And there's really not a whole lot of reason to be here if you're not going to do that. And so he says, good testimony even among those who are outside. Now he goes into the deacons, those people who are serving in any capacity. I'm just going to have to do this real quick because we're out of time. They must be reverent. They have a respect for God. They can't be double-tongued. They shouldn't be somebody who's really hypocritical. They can't be given to much wine. A little different word, so some people say, you know, elders shouldn't hardly drink at all. Deacons can go get drunk once in a while. That's not the idea. <laughs> 
You go, I'll just be a deacon. That's cool. But <laughs> no, that's not the idea. It still, it still means the same thing. You and alcohol shouldn't be, that shouldn't be any kind of an identity with you. Um, not greedy for money, similar as before. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. You let God work in your life. You open your heart to him. You don't close yourself off from him. But let those also first be tested, so they shouldn't be brand new. Let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So as you start to serve in subtle ways, then gradually you take more areas of leadership in the areas of the church that aren't specifically spiritual oversight, as a, as a, a bishop would be, but as more of an organizational kind of an oversight in every area of ministry. Now, within the church, there are a whole lot of things that somebody can do who's brand new. You just accepted Christ, you can get involved. But then you watch the people who are involved, and as they're faithful, you know they're going to show up, and you're seeing them grow, then you ask them to be in leadership in a particular area. And that's kind of how the church works. Ultimately, um, that's where all the leaders of the church come from is people who want to serve. And so he's just saying, you know, you know it's, this is a good proving ground for you. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, diabolos in the Greek, from what we, which we get the word devil, um, and uh, diabolical. So it's talking, stabbing people in the back, talking bad about other people. Um, their wives should be temperate, also faithful in all things. Um, there's some disagreement as to whether he's here talking about the wives of deacons or whether he's talking about deaconesses because there are female deacons and so he may have diverted on that discussion. Either way, it's all true. This is what a godly person ought to be like, man or woman. And then he says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their house as well, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So he goes, you serve God well. You do what God has called you to do. You allow him to work in your heart and in your life, giving you the kind of character of Jesus Christ that he wants you to have. You've done a good job. It's great. For all of us, the ultimate challenge is not to look at these descriptions of character and disqualify ourselves or to feel guilty but this is this should be our prayer list for ourselves compare what he's describing here as spiritual maturity and and look at our own lives and then you know which areas to pray for for yourself for God to work because it should be the aspiration of every one of us to have other people see our lives have us be able to look in the mirror and to say, yeah, that's actually, I see God working in all of these areas in my life. I'm really growing. Nothing's more pathetic than to be satisfied with where you are and never, never allowing God to do more. And, but it's his work. It's his spirit who does it. This is just to let us know whether we're on track or not. And I would encourage you too, as you look at this list also, think of people who really exemplify some of these traits and then ask yourself, you know, how could I be influenced by that? How could I be more like that? Maybe it's just simple taking a little extra time with people or, 
You know, maybe it's studying a little bit more, just speaking up a little bit more, whatever it is. Um, let's let this be the grocery list for our lives. This is what I want to be when I grow up because that's where God's heart is. And then what title you have, what job you have in the church means nothing. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you are. And that's what he's sharing with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. So faithfully declares to us your plans for our lives. God, I pray that every one of us would be challenged by these, these teachings, this truth, this passage of Scripture. Lord, develop within us these kinds of character qualities so that the people that we know would see what maturity looks like in a believer and so that you could use us as leaders, influencers over others, leaders of our families, leaders in our community, leaders in our church. However you want to use us, Lord, please prepare us by developing within us this maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today, by the way, and you don't